Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership super talented R&B vocalist, composer, and producer, Sandra St. Victor, best known as part of the Family Stand. From 1989 to 2010, she recorded several albums with the trio, including the funky hit Ghetto Heaven. Prior to that, she earned her stripes as an in-demand background singer, and during her career has collaborated with stars like Roy Ayers, Shaka Khan, Tawatha Eiji, Paula Abdul, Daryl Hall, and Curtis Mayfield. She's also released solo albums and formed a singing all-star collective that performs as the Daughters of Soul. Superstars who have recorded her lyrics include Prince and Tina Turner. Wow, Sandra, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm pretty, pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for having me, of course. My well, pleasure. Thanks for coming. And uh, where are you today? I'm in the Netherlands, in Arnhem, where I live, my main homestead, um, in the attic. So I must explain the, <laughs> the, you see my clothes and outfits and shoe collection and all kinds of stuff behind me right now. So uh, uh, excuse that. <laughs> now, well, it looks like sources of inspiration to me. <laughs> well, oh, you know what? Everything at the end of the day <laughs> becomes a source of inspiration, one way or another, good or bad. <laughs> no doubt. So, so good to have you. Thank you for making the time to uh, speak to the audience today. Appreciate that. No problem. Fantastic. So, Sandra, you know you're you're from Dallas, right? Um, what drew you to music and singing in the first place? You know, how did you make that your path? I think that the path made me more or less. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I wasn't looking for something to do. I wasn't looking for someone to be, I wasn't, you know, I just realized one, one day I was cleaning, I was dusting furniture and I realized how good it felt to sing. And I was like, you know, I was eight at that point And I said, I think I'm a singer. I said that to myself. I said it out loud as I was dusting this lamp in the living room. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of been my path. And I've never strayed from it, not even for a moment. It's never been a question. Wow. And did you feel comfortable, you know, doing it in front of people and on stage right from the get-go? Or did that take some time? Yeah, from the get-go. Because, you know, you know how parents are... Uh, Sandra K come in here and sing something for your auntie. You know, so every gathering, you know, I had to sing. <laughs> and then it became church, of course, uh, singing in a choir, doing solos. So I've been doing solos since I was, I think my first solo at church was 12. Maybe 12, yeah, 11 or 12. And were there musicians in the family or anything like that? 
You know, actually, yes. And what was so cool because uh, I had a, uh, the Whitfields, uh, my cousins, um, and, you know, every time we'd go over to their house, they had nothing but music. All of the kids uh, played and sang piano and organ. The father actually played saxophone. And every time we go there, uh, there was like a party. It was always like it was just a jam session. And, you know, as a little kid growing up, watching that and always feeling too young to be a part of, they were just great, man. They were so dope. And I never, when then, I never, I never joined. I never joined. I just watched, you know. And as I got older and realized that's what I wanted to do. And my cousin, who was Robert Goody Whitfield, actually, uh, he played uh, with the Gap Band and he played with Natalie Cole and and then he put out, uh, he was signed to a Total Experience, I think it was called, with you know, and he put out an album and had a hit song called, uh, album called Goodies Goody. I can't remember the single, but um, yeah, he was on Soul Train. So my cousin's on Soul Train, you know, <laughs> was like doing his song, you know, so um, it, that's, part of, that's part of my growing up family. Um, the interesting part, the other side of that is that I'm adopted. So those are my blood relatives. <laughs> so I found a whole nother family of music years later when I found out who my family was. Hmm. Fascinating. Wow. <laughs> um, and who were some of your, you know, early musical heroes? You know, was there somebody also that maybe you saw perform for the first time and just kind of blew you away? Earth, Wind, Fire. My dad took me to see an Earth Wind and Fire concert, and yeah, I was sewer front and center, and the whole thing was just amazing to me. Um, I was just like, "Whoa!" And uh, Jesus, <laughs> the just the coordination of everything, and the, you know, I was already into music for myself at that point. So, you know, I was going to music school, so I, I knew all the technical. I was like, "Wow, look how they did that! Look, just nice chords and this, you know." It was, uh, it blew my mind. And, um, and that as far as live is concerned on rec on recordings, all of Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie Wonder, um, but, um, and, and, and Elton John, I loved, I loved, uh, I love Queen. Um, and then I totally got into jazz at one point and I was only listening to Ella and Sarah and June Christie and, you know, these, voices i was just into voices at, at, at one point so i've definitely my my tastes i've you know pretty much run the gamut as far as genres are concerned and they all have become a part of me you know all of that of course always makes up who you end up you know forming into you just get into uh you get into your own bag really and, you know, what was the group or, or point where you felt like, you know, I think I can make a go of this career-wise? Probably in high school. Um, you know, high school, I went to, um, grew up in Dallas, Texas. And I went to the high school, Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing Arts. Also, Roy Hargrove went there. Edie Brickell and Nora Jones and Erica Badu all came out of that high school. Um, so there, I pretty much knew this is it for me. Yeah, this is kind of much. Yeah, this is what I'm doing, you know. And it was, you know, it, it was probably looking back at it, it was probably too easy for me in high school. It's not like one stuff all the time, you know, and you know, the, got solos a lot of the time. And, um, so when you, have a, a childhood, like a, a well, teenagehood that seems so easy. When you get out into the real music business, you realize, oh, shit, this shit ain't like that. Work. <laughs> you know, you got to really, you got to bust your, your, you know, your butt out here for real. So I had to learn, you know, uh, from the ground up, as we all do, once you get out there, school ain't shit. Okay. When you get out there, you got to do it. You know, so the experience is the real school. And, and what about your, you know, aspirations? Did you think you would go as a solo act, as part of a band or background singing? 
And I always knew I wanted to be an artist um, because I decided that actually also early on. I um, After high school, I had a full scholarship, music scholarship um, to uh, Kansas University because the music department there was trying to build up and they came down there and recruited folks. And I was uh, the one they recruited from my school. And I was there for like a year in their uh, department, in their um, you know music department. They were trying to build up their jazz department. It was not there yet. So it was still focused on the classical pieces, which I also love classical music, by the way. But I knew that I didn't want to be a classical artist at that point. I decided that, and then, also decided I didn't want to be a jazz singer because I wanted to write. I knew I needed to write. I didn't want to sing hundreds-year-old songs for the rest of my life. I didn't want to, oh, we're going to do the, you know, the habanera this week. This, this, y'all, this y'all will be doing the, you know, I just didn't, you know, the, the La Boheme. I don't, I, they're beautiful. And I like to listen to them. I like to sing them. But I didn't want a, a career of just, you know, going through the cycle of, you know, the classics forever that made me decide that I have to be an artist writing my own music. And how did you cultivate, you know, composing? Oh, wow. Uh, sitting in my room as a kid, writing songs and having my brother laugh at me. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> you know, I used to, uh, I played piano, wrote songs on piano later, but before I really started writing on the piano, I was just, you know, singing melodies and write little poems and then because of Earth, because of Barry White, I got a kalimba. And so I started like writing songs, you know, thinking I was doing something. And my brother used to come in there and be like, bling, I'm cleaning an aisle, bling. <laughs> Terrible fun of me. <laughs> my lyrics weren't, I'm, I'm cleaning an right, by the way. But that's what he got out of, you know, the depth of what I was trying to portray. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I just I yeah I, I kind of just started writing poetry, putting melodies to it, and then eventually moving to the piano and coming up with stuff. Yeah. So, what kind of subject matter did you tend to gravitate toward in terms of your composing? Uh, Self identity, uh, blackness, always from the beginning. You know, I was definitely into my. I was wearing dashikis and shit, you know, at that point already. You know, so my dad thought it was weird. But um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty much, I, I think I had one at that time, one love song, you know, because I, yeah, I was really discovering that really. I, I had a song called Here I Go. And it's like the lyrics are Here I Go, that old feeling, you know. Life is love, but they say that life is killing. But they say life is love, but this love is killing. You know, <laughs> those are the lyrics. Okay, but it was my first love song. So, and the rest of it was, you know, just about being yourself and being who you are and finding your, you know, embracing you. You know, those are the lyrics. The, most of the lyrics of everything else I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And and your first would you say your first big break was uh, Roy Ayers? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was with a band called Laissez Faire with an artist, uh, guitar player named Zachary Bro. And um, you know, we had, we were doing traveling in Texas and and um, Louisiana back and forth over the border, and that's how we ran into Roy. And Roy offered me a gig, and I moved to New York. So he was he's the one that got me to New York. Uncle Roy took me on the road. <laughs> yeah. How familiar were you with his music at that time? I was very familiar because I used to sit there and, you know, and uh, vibe on his stuff. So at the point, that point in my life, it felt like that uh, before the words were known as they are today, I felt like it was intention. You know, I was, I would, I would, focus on things, not trying uh, consciously to bring stuff to me, but intentionally I was vibing on that music a lot. I was drinking it in, I was absorbing it. And then he shows up 
And at the same that after that, you know, I started vibing on Shaka Khan and Rufus and Shaka shows up at a Roy Air show and then we start talking and we vibe. So, yeah, it felt like, you know, when I focus on something, you know, <laughs> you know it, starts, it comes, it appears. It's the naivete of youth, but I think there is a little, a little seed of truth in there. Yeah. Visualize it and make it real. Yeah. Yeah. With 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 proper motive, you know, I think it's not about, you know, trying to like, oh, I'm going to bring, you know, it's just the purity of really want, wanting to, or really enjoying something. The purity that I, I enjoyed listening to Roy Ayers' albums was not about, I never thought I would meet Roy Ayers. I wasn't thinking I'd meet Roy Ayers. I was just there uh, sitting on the floor because I didn't have a bed at the time. <laughs> sitting on the floor uh listening to his records and wow going back and going you know this is the 70s so i was this is the 80s already and the all of his greatest shit was in the 70s so i had to teach myself all of that stuff and wow you know you get into somebody's cast i go out and just go down a rabbit hole of somebody's catalog and yeah you you the energy is of, is of course thick when you're that deep off into something. Do you remember your first performance on stage with Royers and his band? Oh, wow. What was the first one? It's probably Blues Alley. I think it was Blues Alley. Because I remember, yeah, standing in front of his house, Zachary and I, because he took Zachary and I up. And um, we're, they were loading the the van and Exactly. I was like, so how much are we getting paid? I'm like, I don't know. You don't know. Well, no, we didn't even know how much we were getting paid. And we we're getting ready to go out with Roy Ayers. Well, you ask. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. He likes you more. You ask. So, so then, we, then we drove to D.C. So it was Blues Alley. I'm trying to remember if I remember that actual show, but I, I, I know it was Blues Alley. How old were you about? I was 18. Just a few few years back, a couple of years back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so uh, how much time did you uh, end up spending with Roy? Um, so, so that was, let me shock. So that was 82, 83. I feel like I was with him long enough. I think it was. I think I think I was with Roy for eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, because then I got with Shock in eighty four. Yeah, so it was about two, maybe two and a half years, something like that. So, what would you say are one or two of the uh, lessons you learned that helped you moving forward in in the business and in your career from that first Roy Ayers experience? Um, hmm. wow, there's so many, uh, lessons. Um, I think if I have to narrow down like two, maybe one would be, um, of course, uh, being clear and, uh, consistent with your craft and, um, no matter, I mean, you know, when we're doing Royers and doing Shaka Khan, well, all of those gigs where I was like sideman, your craft, your job at that point is to to uh, support them. So when I'm with Roy, you know, I'm, I'm tr I want to support the records that people come to hear. So that means, okay, there's who are the female folks? There's D.D. Bitch Bridgewater. There's Chicas. Um, I think there's a couple of them, but I wanted to know what it was about their thing that made that record work, you know, for Roy, with Roy. But at the same time, I want to bring my own interpretation to it. So that's a craft. It really is, you know, you, and, um, and with, with Yvette, with Shaka, um, she sang all of her background vocals. So if you're gonna be on stage with Shaka Khan saying background, you have to sound like Shaka Khan. So I had to teach myself because I was really a jazz, more of a jazzy vocalist 
I teach myself to, okay, let's wail. <laughs> let's do this siren shit, you know? So, you know, I took, I took on that. Uh, I tried to emulate the siren sound of her, her uh, stacked background vocals. That's craftsmanship. So you have to know your job and be and study, study. So to be the best that you can be and then take it beyond so you can take something from it for yourself. Um, that's just one thing. The other thing I would always say is know the business. Know, know the business. Know whatever business you're getting into. And the, the, the problem I was talking about this with a musician yesterday is, of course, we all want to do, we would all do it for the love, you know. But yo, and people will take advantage of that. And they have. That's what they do. That you know, everybody knows that. And um, people get taken in by that the excitement of somebody digging and getting you. And maybe that person really does dig and get you, but is a it's a business. So if that person is thinking more business like than you, guess who's gonna <laughs> guess who's gonna get more you know advantage out of this thing financially and otherwise? Probably not you. <laughs> so. You really do have to just slow things out because ain't nothing that has to happen right now. You got to do this right now. Yo, we got, you got, yo, none of that is true. That's bullshit. You can always say, well, okay, well, give me, let me, I'll get back. Go back, you know, research what you got to do, ask questions, talk to somebody, you know, who people you trust or uh, whatever legally you need to do. But you can always take that moment and step back. It ain't nothing that has to happen right now. I'm sure there's a gazillion lessons I'll think of after we hang up. <laughs> well, those are Not excellent ones. Sage advice, <laughs> sage advice for sure. Uh, you know, and Sandra, you got to know Shaka Khan is my favorite female singer of all time. I profess it on the show all the time. And, uh, yeah, no <laughs> just, you know, just love her. Um, no, we what, all. <laughs> how, how did you feel when you first got, you know, uh, intimate exposure to that voice and that talent? I was, uh, flabbergasted really um because you know you hear stuff on the radio and the songs of course i love the song and her voice no thing but um when i put on i think the first album that i got of hers was ask rufus and when i heard her sing rolling through the rushes an egypt song um and what's the other one on that album that's uh everlasting love no 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 not what hit um Brown, uh, what's it called? It's it's the three songs that killed me on that album. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, it's, I know Hollywood. I know at midnight, but you're talking about that like sort of Rufus. Yeah, yeah. So it's one that more more of the esoteric songs where I I, I really connected with her soul. I, I I said, okay, this is her. That's her. Ah, damn, man, she heavy. You know. So and then then I it's like. I could connect um, a spirit with that voice. That's where all that freedom, that's where all that openness comes from. That's where all of that, like just uh, soaring belief in, 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 in self and life, that's all in her voice. And that took me away, you know, that, that really took me away. And uh, I was like, ain't nobody like that. There's just nobody like, nobody, nobody sings like that. You know, you can imitate her all day, but you can't you can't be that. <laughs> you know. Yeah, she's she's a one she she's a one off. <laughs> and so the the year you got with her was uh, what? Because I'm trying to think of where she was in her career. Yeah, then. it was it was. I think we met in '83, and the first tour I did with her was uh was the I Feel for You tour. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was 83, 84. Yeah, so that was a renaissance for her with that hit, yeah, at that time. Absolutely, absolutely. Things changed overnight, you know. Everything was different, you know. So uh, it was, I've seen her go through several of these transformations at this point, you know. But that was definitely one of them. Um, watching her blossom. What were those shows like for you? Um, well, you know, we're again, 
we're getting to know each other then. And, um, and she's really trying to, trying to navigate this newfound superstardom, you know? So the shows were wild for her too. She, she's, you know, she's used to doing shows, obviously she'd been touring for years, but these particular shows with the, the, the numbers, the audience numbers was like, okay, I've never been on this stage with these kind of numbers, but hell, almost she had almost not been there by herself she'd been there with rufus with festivals and all this sort of thing but as just shaka khan this was kind of this was next this was the next thing so it was it was really like the being being at the beginning of a almost uh yeah like you said a renaissance it was being at the beginning of that was it was interesting to to be a part of that you know and enjoy her enjoying that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and she parlayed that into the Steve Winwood stuff and all kinds yeah. of interesting projects. Yep, yep, yep. Very interesting. And also the the, the song with uh, Bruce Hornsby. And she did some really cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and I certainly hear her influence coming through, you know, your singing. So... Whatever, uh, you know, you say you were not really a Shaka, um, I don't want to say clone. Shaka but you, yeah, <laughs> you, you weren't that, but you took that in. And, yeah. and and ever since then, I think it, you know, comes through in what you do in certain, yeah. you know, stylistic things. And um, that ain't a bad thing at all. So, you know. <laughs> I hope not, because it's like... <laughs> It is a part of what I do now. Oh, I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I very much appreciate it. You know, so I mean, when I first heard you, I was like, "Well, there's, I, I definitely hear some shock influence, which yeah. is great <laughs> for me." So, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, so you ended up being with her about how long? And some of these other people, like uh, Paula Abdul and Tawatha, um, was that concurrent or was that after? Or what was the? Um, what's well, the? I was doing background work. Uh, in the studio background work as well at the same time, you know, because um, when I got there, uh, when I got to New York, um, Brenda, Brenda, uh, who introduced me to Brenda? I think Lisa Fisher introduced me to Brenda. I had met Brenda, uh, Lisa when I still lived in Texas before I even got with Roy Ayers when I was with this other band. Um, she was singing with the crystals, the, you know, the, that, that, uh, adoration of the, the crystals touring around and so we kept bumping into each other we you know it was fun we had fun so when i moved to new york she said well, look i can get hook you up with some session people in the room so she hooked me up with brenda white king and brenda started taking me on sessions um so that's why i met the whole <clears throat> the whole session group <clears throat> brenda tawatha cindy audrey you know um so that was about the same time that I was also doing, you know, a goit. I was going out with Roy, and then after that, going out with with Yvette. And um, I know when I was home, I do sessions and little gigs here and there, and, when, and then I go on tour. <laughs> you know, it's kind of what we all did back then. I forgot did, the question. Did you also do studio with Shaka or just uh, yes. shows? Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. What was it like? the studio experience with her. Oh, amazing. <laughs> it's like, that was so much fun. We had, uh, yeah. Well, again, she, she, there, there was the, my favorite experience, a song recording experience was tight fit. Cause it was just her and I in the, in, in the studio. Um, and, you know, you know, with stacking vocals and I do, and, and I do a note, she do note, I do note. And then we did some, did some stuff together. And we got back in the booth. We're like, and they were, you know, Singling out the things, the EQ, singing the singing out each track. And it's like, was that me or you? Oh, no. Wait, was that? Wait. <laughs> well, I think that was me. Well, I think that was you. <laughs> that was just fun, you know. But we had a lot of fun, fun times in the studio, you know, watching a Reef Martin at, at the board with a gazillion vocal tracks. And everybody had their process. Russ Titleman had his process. And um it, it was it was a, an amazing experience to to be in a studio with those kind of those kind of cats you know what i mean uh, you know, um, 
Yeah. So I, yeah, it was it was it was it was dope. It was, it was definitely dope. <laughs> I don't know how else to. Yeah. I I just had Steve Ferroni, drummer, uh, on, oh, yeah. and he was in some of the sessions. He was talking about a reef and. and uh, and Shaka, and he said that they would, you know, lay down a lot of the tracks, and then yeah. usually Shaka might come in, and she would have an interpretation, and they would all change to accommodate that because, you know, when she did her thing. Oh, you gotta that's you gotta support that. That's what you got to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she she would. I know Reef would have her sing down like fifty times, and he would record all of it. You know, so. They were all good, and I'd be like, "Damn, that was great!" She's gonna do it again. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I just to imitate him. I just to imitate Reef because I forgot about that. Because he would, he would, uh, she would finish a, a perfect track, and he would go, "Perfect, do it again." And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> "Perfect, do it again." And it's just like, and I was like, "Perfect, do it again." Okay. <laughs> do it again. And she just sang it down and blasted away again, and maybe the different little turn, little twists here, a little inf inflection that she didn't do on the last one. And then he would take like a little piece. He would take out inflection and inflection on that note, and then put it with the rest of this word. <laughs> you know, he would just. I'm like, what the hell does he even know that the G, you know, in the in the word, you know, fling. Uh, uh, is over there and the rest of the word fling is over there. He's like, okay, I want the G of fling and the rest of the word. And you know, it was insane to watch an insane process. I've never seen anybody as meticulous as him, as Arif Martin in the studio. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He's a master for sure. Yeah. Ooh, he's uh, more than a master. Yeah. He was a master teacher too. Yeah, because his son also, Joe, also became really good at the uh, productions well well it's not easy to give me goosebumps but uh shock has done it many times especially when she really opens up and just does that you know yeah when it, when it goes all out there yeah 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 she can you know uh, I, I tell her all the time like those early recordings how how she sang from where she sang um are the most purest you know, vocals that I know of on record, you know, uh, certainly in the modern era. Uh, she she just came from a place that was so unadulterated, so, you know, so free. Um, and I, that place is not touched on a lot enough with vocalists now, <laughs> I think. I think people sing to impress and to, and to be perfect and sing to show off skills and sing to have a hit record, whatever. That way, you don't hear that when you listen, you know, to better days. You don't, you don't hear that when you listen to um, your smile or, you know, those songs where she just sounds like, she sounds like a grown ass kid in, in a grown ass candy store, <laughs> you know, and she has her choice of, of of feelings to emote, and she can emote it at any moment, at any time. Pull them up from wherever she feels the need naturally. That place, that place to sing from that place is the dream. And um, we're going to need to move on and talk about you've done so much, but. Um... You know, in some of the discussions I've had about her, too, just uh, some of the unique nuances that she does, unlike anybody else, like just the way she enunciates R's, you know, and things like that. And just the <laughs> phrasing is just off the chart. Yes, yes, yes. Her phraseology is, is unique. And it's, you know, it also comes from her um, from her influences, you know. She listens to jazz and she loves jazz and um she loves Joni Mitchell, you know, so like those R's sometimes you hear, you know, the R, you know, it's, it's sort of Joni-esque um, in her delivery. But she's an, an amalgamation of things with a, with a, of, of her influences as we all are, 
but with that unique voice that is just her. Yeah. Yeah. With incredible God given talent meets everything else. There it is. There it is. (laughs) Wow. So how did you um, roll into the family stand? Um, I started uh, Lisa Fisher again. Lisa was doing, uh, Peter and Jeff were writing songs for other artists and Lisa was seeing the demos for them. And when she was beginning to go on the road a lot with Luther, I think it was Luther that, yeah, it was before the roles. It was Luther Vandross. Um, she asked me to, you know, fill in singing these demos for Peter and Jeff for their production, you know, situations and and we did, so i did that and um we really vibed together you know uh it was a, like almost an immediate musical click um, so you know uh, they were gonna do an album um, a production album like you know like a quincy jones with a bunch of different features on it and um, they had that deal already in place with Atlantic Records. So they had some singers lined up. So we started you know, recording my song or songs that I was gonna do on this project. And we just ended up doing the whole album together, right? Just a, a whole album's worth of stuff. So then they took me to the label and said, we don't want, we just wanna be a group. We don't want to, <laughs> like what? You know, it was like really kind of how it played out. So that's, you know, that's the it's the short version of it, but it, we just ended up being a group because uh, because of the click was so natural. And so, you know, and so on point, we really love what we created together. And how did the name come about? Well, we were Yvonne Jeffries and The Stand before, uh, which which was, so this is Peter. Peter takes full credit for it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, Charging him. He already says, I know that was all me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like Yvonne, it was Peter's mother's name. And then Jeffries was for Jeff. And then because I was a big Stephen King fan, and I think I was reading the book The Stand at the time, then I was the stand. I was like, mm, this is so stupid. But okay, that <laughs> was Peter's whole idea. So they put, if you notice, we still use the halo over the ST of stand for saint. So that was how, so it was Yvonne Jefferson Stan. And then in the, we did the first album and every interview that we did, you know, they, you know, the, the journalists will always refer to me as, so Yvonne, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, so I, the, the time I had to take out of every interview to explain that name, that I had just explained to you, why Yvonne, why Jim, why SD, why, you know, and then my name is actually Sandra. I'm not even, you know, it just, I say, you know, I don't want to, can we not? And so Merlin Bob, who was the A&R at Atlantic at that time, VP of A&R, she said, why don't you just change to the family stand? And we're like, okay. <laughs> when he was like, we have to take a vote. It was like, okay, fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now that means now we're forever, you know, lobbed next to the family stones like okay no 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 they're the family stone (laughs) we're not the family stone you know to have their success hey you know but well then they they, they could have jumped to the conclusion also that you all had the last name stan (laughs) right exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) that's right yes sandra stan peter stan That's a good one. I should have thought of that back in the day. <laughs> I remember when I first, you know, saw the album, uh, and uh, I immediately thought of, you know, of course, what you just mentioned, Sly and the Family Stone, that that would yeah. be an influence in the name. Um, so it sounds like maybe it wasn't so much. Well, it wasn't, no, certainly not consciously. I mean, Merlin Bob said the family stand, and we were like, fine, great. You know, and we love the... Uh, you know, I don't fucking worship everybody in that, you know, period should worship Sly and the Fam Stone for what all of they did, if everything they did for the music business, the, the industry for, you know I mean, all praise do, <laughs> you know, so I am mad. I was never mad at the, you know, at the mix up, but 
So I mean, if you Google family stand now, you, you'll get a lot of family stone. But you know what you also will get? You will get uh, a lot of stuff from uh, the UK because at, I, be I believe at football stadiums, they have a, something called the family stand where people, maybe the family, uh, the family section of the stadium for the mm -hmm. players. So there's something called the family stand in sports in the UK. So you get that a lot. It's like, what is that? Uh, well, I guess maybe it was fortuitous to avoid further confusion that Prince's, the family uh, protege awesome. group was not still around uh, by the time you guys, they just were the one and done. And so, yeah. Well, I, I thought they came out. Didn't they come out in the, when did they come out? It was the late 80s? Like 85 was that one album. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but um, man, what a great album, you know, and, and for all intents and purposes, I guess there was, you know, some records with, your um bandmates before that but um that record seemed to be a debut you know to me and yeah, uh, to most people. very impressive you know um, thank you yeah uh were you surprised when uh that uh single took off like it did for sure yeah you don't expect it you know you get on the radio and you know, all of a sudden you're sitting next to donnie simpson you know on, you know <laughs> Like, what is happening? Oh, you know, your dad is showing you off at the grocery store. Now, that's my daughter. She that sang from the, you know. <laughs> dad walked around with a cassette in his back pocket all the time. It's very As he should. As he should. <laughs> no, it was, it was, that was dope. That was fun. To what extent did you uh, tour on that? Not as much as we wanted to, for sure. Um, I mean, they let us do some, like a few things, uh, without a band, you know, which is not really, it doesn't really, it's not conducive to our full thing. Um, but the problem actually was that the, 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 the song that became the hit was the remix, the Soul to Soul version. And Soul to Soul was very big at that time. And the rest of our album was really rock soul. Okay. Soul rock. How are we going to put that? A funk rock. And so you got this soul to soul vibe and you got a funk rock album. So, you know, uh, we had to almost train our audiences because people come in there for ghetto hair, like, what is this shit? And, uh, you know, so we weeded out the people that were only there for ghetto heaven, thought we would, if they think we're from the UK, some offshoot of soul to soul. We weeded those folks out pretty early and, and garnered um, a, a fabulous base of folks that came for that for that funk soul thing so those folks were real those folks were those shows were like lines around the block and you know sold out all the time those were great those were great who are some of the acts that you share to bill with uh larry graham graham Station. station <laughs> you know it's the first one that comes to mind because that was great you know the tour we had a, a lot of fun on this tour it's also a, a weird bill, but we opened up on several shows with, for uh, in the in the states with Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. So you know they didn't come for that; they came for reggae, and then they getting us up there, you know, banging our heads. Uh, and then we did a European tour opening up um, for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Henry Rollins Band. Oh. So that was, that was awesome. That was awesome. Okay. Um, those, those are some definitely uh, interesting bills, you know. Right, right, yeah. I'm, no, that, I'm, fan, I'm, fan, I'm fans of all those guys too, though. So, oh, dope, man. I mean, that was those shows are like, I mean, standing, I, because I, I, I was fans of Ziggy and I was fans of, um, of uh, the Chili Pop Peppers. So I would do, we do our set, and I couldn't wait to go to side stage and watch them do their thing, man. It's like, damn, stop. Just watching them kill it every night, man. Uh, one show we did that one bill that definitely did not work. It was only a one show. Somebody booked us on a gig in the UK. I think it was a theater called Brighton something or in Brighton. Opening up for, I think it was Chuck D and, and um, some rappers, like three rappers. I'm like, why are we opening up there? This is like, it didn't work. Like, boo! <laughs> so, 
Like, get out of here. They don't hear that stuff. That was a, not a fun show, but a fun experience looking back. <laughs> Do you uh, manage to not let it uh, feel personal when that happens? No, it feels very personal in the moment. <laughs> Yo, I just, we had to stop our guitar player because Ronnie Drayton is like, he was, he was black belt, man. He, was, he, he wanted to jump down and beat somebody. I'm like, yo, Ronnie, right, right, right. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Just, just do the show. Just do the show. They were just, ah, all through our separate. Just, just do the show. Let's finish the show. We cut it a little short, but it was like, woo, that was brutal. Ronnie, <laughs> what? Ronnie was in your touring band? Yeah. Wow. Awesome player. Rest in peace. Yes. My brother from another. Yeah, man. Yeah, he and Mooney Pusey were, we had both of them at one point and, and one or the other a lot of times. And they both left us in the past couple of years. We lost both of them. Yeah, that's one thing, especially doing this show, uh, just, you know, as we lose these great people, it just really gets gets to me, especially if I haven't had a chance to have them on and help, you know, spread the word and preserve these legacies. And I agree. You know. I appreciate it. It's so, so appreciate Let me say that to you right now. <clears throat> what you what you do is this is preserve is preserving history that. Um, Otherwise, you know, where is it preserved? You need to have these documented um, conversations with with uh, people that are true to this art and and, and real for us, and uh, um, to have folks appreciate that and you know you know care enough to reach out and and want to put some light on it, shed some light on it is a blessing. I appreciate you for that. Uh, it's my honor and uh you know so good to have uh folks like you too because i feel that you're definitely a person that you know upholds the truth and rhythm you know philosophy hey, throughout your career that, so that's that is a that's the yeah. goal that is the goal so how did you feel you know what was the uh thought process you know going in for that second record with the family stand well, we wanted to almost obliterate the the notion that we were sold to sold offshoots. So we wanted to, like, we had been doing these live shows. We knew what the audience loved that we did on stage. They loved it when we rocked out with that funk bass. And it, yeah, it was um, it was obvious after doing all the shows who we really were, you know. Because before we were just in the studio, you know, we we came up with this this you know this funk rock thing in the studio, which worked out. Uh, but live, it was even more because you know you got again Ronnie Drayton like y'all taking us there, and so it really did evolve. So we well, evolved. So we went into the studio with that energy. That's the energy we took in the studio. So we came up with Moon and Scorpio because that's what we were. We was basically just off tour into the studio. And it, it um, I think for me, Moon and Scorpio, you know, Moon and Scorpio is the, you know, the penultimate family stand um, piece because it really does, it, it showcases all of our, uh, uh, all of our innate, all of our sensibilities, you know, so I can, I'm even doing some of my, you know, Sarah Vaughn stuff on where does mommy live? You know, I'm, I'm all of the stuff that we are all the Beatles, Jeff with the, with the, the solo horn stuff. And, you know, we had it all in there. And uh, that's a lot for uh, just a, a public who, who, uh, Oh, that's the band that did ghetto heaven. And they put this record on. They get, hair it's flying back. So, so we we did obliterate those that thought we were sold so <laughs> we did and uh you know and they they never really put us back on tour they didn't even have the records in the stores so you know they you know kind of killed us they didn't know where to slot you that same old story um i used to go to record stores tile records and take our records out of the r&b second section and put it in rock 
because it's not R&B. And there was no like, you know, there was no, there was it. R&B, rock. There was no funk. It was, it was just R&B, rock. <laughs> so, yeah, and R&B itself was so narrowly niched at that point. Yes, it was very, very narrow. So we weren't babyface anywhere near. I love babyface, but we weren't babyface. So, you know, it's like, why is this record over there? I would just go move them. <laughs> Physically move Well, even like at that point, almost bands became sort of like counter to R&B at that point. Oh, definitely. You know? Yeah. It was about the machine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the album definitely, I mean, struck me just much rockier, much more dynamic, much more ambitious. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it was. It wasn't. We knew it was. Uh, an ambitious project. We honestly, you know, I, I never looked at it as uh, a masturbatory, you know, <laughs> thing for us. We were, weren't just trying to get off. We were, again, we were being true to ourselves. And that's who we were. We knew we had just left the stage. That's who we are. So we got to record it. And was uh, the label saying we need a ghetto heaven too? Of course, <laughs> we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have the first one because the first one was remixed by Soul to Soul. If you want to be honest, we don't have that. <laughs> so, the thing that became famous is, <laughs> yeah, it's a good song, but uh, our version of the album is more us. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.